Blog Talk Radio. All right. Hello, folks. And it is Friday once again. And we are coming to you live. We have Tony Price uh, planned to come on today. He was um, on... uh, he was in the Navy in the early, uh, got out in the early 90s, and basically what he did is he was in NAVCOM debt, which was a, a Navy communications detachment. So we're going to talk about that for now. Uh, Karen, if you could take over and talk a little bit. I'm actually having a, some uh, technical difficulties that I want to go ahead and um, hash out real quick. Right.
Right. Yeah. Right. 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 So uh, something I found a little bit interesting is when you were talking about a full um, a full phone being fully uh, taken over um, and then not knowing what was going on. Uh, it kind of reminds me of the Amityville case. Um, and when they, when the police, it, um, when the police interrogated Robert DeFeo Jr., he said he had no recollection whatsoever of, of grabbing that rifle. He just, he had a slight recollection of it showing up in his lap and being told, here, take this, this is what you're gonna do. Just, yeah. Jeez. Mm-hmm. 
Right, right. Yep. Which situation was that when he uh sitting in the cabin? Oh yeah. Well, when when her brother was interrogated, he didn't deny anything. He didn't he didn't say no, I didn't do that or that didn't happen. So, but as far as his recollection of that happening, we have no idea. Yeah, and they're 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 not to be toyed with. Um, I think that's made painfully clear. Right. I ought to. So, yeah, I just wanted to reiterate with with people who are maybe are uh, coming on a little bit late or uh, maybe are on this later. Uh, we are talking to AG5, Tony Price, tonight. Uh, he had to run his daughter somewhere, so he's going to be on a little late. But uh, right now, we're just kind of uh, doing a recap on our future guests. Um, so, and we were talking about Father Lampert, who's going to come on and talk about um, exorcisms and um, demonic possession. So here's here's something funny. I've been on this earth for 38 years, never seen it once. <laughs> 
that'll be an interesting show. And that uh, Father Lampert is what uh, June twenty ninth. So let's let's do a little recap on what we have till then. Um, so next Friday is going to be the twenty sixth. We have Jake Steiner. Uh, Jake Steiner is a fellow Civil War reenactor with me, um, a brother in arms, if you will. We were in the Seventh Iowa uh, Cav together, um, and a lot of people ask, "Oh, well, cavalry? Did you have horses?" Well, no, we really didn't. Uh, nobody, nobody had them access to them at that point. So we were actually a dismounted cavalry. Uh, so, and what dismount cavalry did is they fall, they fell in with the infantry, um, kind of as a uh, a booster to the arm to help out wherever they were needed. Um, and infantry did not carry uh, the standard muskets of the time; they carried uh, carbines because they're on horses. So, I mean, imagine being on a being on a horse and trying to wield a six-foot musket. Uh, carbines were maybe half that, if not. Um, so you're not, you know, glunking the horse in the head trying to swing a, a, a rifle around. Um, but he's been a reenactor for as long as I can remember. Uh, I met him first. Um, I was with the 5th Minnesota Company C. Um, the first time I went to Boscobel, Wisconsin. And Boscobel, Wisconsin was the biggest um, Civil War reenacting uh, reenactment in the nation in Boscobel, Wisconsin, and I met him there for the first time, and actually ended up joining my group. There was another gentleman in my group that uh, also joined the Seventh Iowa, and uh, we'd go down, and I, I did a couple events with them where I drove down by myself. Uh, my buddy drove down there too. But we're going to be talking to Jake about um, Civil War reenacting and ghost encounters and uh, us reenactors, uh, not only Civil War reenactors, but any reenactors at the time, have a running theory that um, we're kind of a trigger object. And basically what a trigger object is is, is something that the spirit was used to in their time and that they feel comfortable um, interacting with. So the reason I would say we're a tr- trigger object is because while we're reenacting and while we're on site, even though the public is gone, we're still in period uniform, we're still acting, you know, period correct. So they feel right at home. And and that's the theory that us reenactors have. Is they're opening up and they're telling us what's going on because they may not know that they're you know they may not know that they're that far in in the future. Mm-hmm. Well, 
so when I when I was at Fort Ridgely, I I didn't sense a malevolence, but I sensed a heaviness, and that's because what happened during the battle, um, and that's what happened with with the barracks that we were at. Um, but as far as uh, Dakota City, um, I've been volunteering there since I was a teenager, and I have never never felt anything heavy or oppressive or anything bad. It's just, uh, it, it's happy. Um, it's a lot of busy energy. Uh, a couple of buildings that I work in, you know, they just get that feeling of, of busy bodies uh, working around you. Um, and so basically background on what I do is um, I show up early before the school tours and I uh, get a list of the buildings that need to be open for the day and the list of, you know, uh, extraneous things that need to be put out and I grab a golf cart and I go out and I open the buildings. Well, it was after school tours and I was locking up and... Um, this was before I started saying, you know, hello, goodbye, this, that, and uh, had brought the had brought the manual mangler in uh, from the laundry display and and put all the wash basins away, locked the back door, and I was walking from the back door, so the back door opens up into the kitchen, and then from the kitchen it goes into the living room, into the sitting room, and then out the front door. And I had locked the back door. I walked out of the kitchen, and the kitchen maybe three steps from the back door into the living room, and the living room maybe another four or five steps into the front parlor. Um, so I had cleared the kitchen, was about halfway through the living room, and I heard footsteps right above me. Uh, we don't let anybody in the upper level. Uh, no tours go up there. Um, very rarely do any of us volunteers go up there. If we don't have a need, we don't go up there. Um, and I just, I just stopped and I don't know who it was, but I addressed them as, as the Harris's, because that's the Harris house. And I said, well, hey, Harris family, um, I hear you. Basically what I'm doing is I'm just closing up, you know, thanks for, uh, being gentle with us today. Um, and since then, every morning that I show up, every single building when I unlock, the first thing I do is, hello, good morning, how are you doing? And then when I close up, you know, we're done for the day, I'll be back here at this time tomorrow, or like today, it was okay, week's over, we'll be back next week, you know, if not Monday, Tuesday, see you then. Mm. Oh, yes, yes, we've had, um, I don't remember having any experiences with him. Um, 
although there was one time where I had an experience where we were sitting under a, a tent, but I don't remember him really uh, having an experience for that. I think that was just what I what I had sent. But yeah, he's he's had some experiences, and that'll be great to talk to him about that. I don't think I've talked to him in probably safe to say almost ten years face to face. Right. Yep. So that brings us to Friday, June second. And that show, uh, we're going to get into, um, hmm. Oh, that's right. Yep. Yes. Yep. May 30th, so not next weekend, but the weekend, but the week after that, two Tuesdays from now. So, yeah, um, I'm going to be talking about um, pretty much an acquaintance I had in high school. Um, We were good friends at one point, and then it changed, the friendship changed, and it it didn't change on my side. It, It changed on his side, and I could see... Um, I honestly don't know if it was an oppression or a possession at a point, but he wasn't Christian. He may have started out Wiccan, but I think he was, uh, I think it was maybe Santeria or a mixture of something like that because I was in his truck one time and we were going somewhere and he had a Toyota 4Runner. We're going somewhere, and every time we made a corner, this toolbox uh, in the back would slide in and hit up against the wheel well. Well, every time it hit the wheel well, you'd hear a bunch of pennies in there. Like, hey, uh, what's back there? You got a bunch of tools in the box? He goes, no, those are my possessed pennies. And he had a padlock on that box. So um, our friendship didn't really last long after that. Um, so I'll be talking about that, and I'll be talking about the one and only time he tried to come into this house here, and he couldn't do it. So, Right. Mm-hmm. So then that brings us to Friday, June 2nd, and uh, most of you know that because I've had a 
a, a show on this subject before, but most of you know that I'm a hobby model railroadist, um, and I have a uh, two model railroads. I have an HO scale um, that I'm actually saving for a family member when they come of age. I'm going to pass it on. And then I'm actually building myself a N-scale um, layout at home. Um, and it's coming, around, coming along pretty well. But we're going to talk about N-scale railroading. And basically what the show is going to be about is after you make the decision, hey, I want to have a model train, making the decision of, okay, well, I want an N-scale. Well, that's part of the decision. So once you make the decision of, I want to have a model train, the next decision is, where am I going to put it? And within that, where am I going to put it decision is, okay, what, right, what size, what scale of train will fit in this room and give me enough room? So as an example, my wife and I live in a townhome. Uh, there's not much room. Uh, and my layout is a three foot by five foot um, footprint on top of an old desk. Um, I have laid out my HO set on that, but that doesn't give it a lot of room, so I run N scale. So um, N scale is pretty much the second to smallest scale that's out there. Uh, there's a small scale called Z scale, Z scale. And it's, all of those are made by Markland, which is a uh, European company. But uh, we'll dive into that. We're going to have Kim, Kimberly Renzen and Anthony Bianchi. Bianchi. Um, both friends of mine, the funny thing is they are both vegan actors, um, and they both have the hobby. Um, Anthony has a YouTube channel, um, Mr. V's Hiawatha Land. Um, he's got a layout himself. Um, and basically we're going to be talking about where's the, you know, once you made the decision, once you know what you're going to get, where do I go? Or, I mean, what brand is best? Do I go down to my local... Um, hobby shop and spend money there, or do I go onto the web and go to like trains.com or train world or um, what brand do I go with? Do I go with Boxman? Do I go with Atlas? Do I go with Athens? Uh, you know, and it's, it's one of those things where you better be prepared to spend some money. And unfortunately, with, with, well, well, yeah, unfortunately with everything, with the price of inflation, it, it has gone up. Um, but I'm going to tell you, N scale is a lot cheaper than some of the other scales. Um, I was just, just looking at garden scale. Um, just to see how much they are, and I was astonished. Yes, so so Garden Scale is pretty much the biggest um, model railroad scale you can get before you go to live steam. Um, 
Yeah. So, and and <laughs> to kind of tell my 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 listeners and viewers, um, I am actually starting a new volunteer uh, opportunity next Saturday, and that's going to be at the uh, Minnesota Transportation Museum uh, down off of um, down in St. Paul there uh, at the Roundhouse, um, and they have. Uh, quite an extensive selection of heritage uh, diesel locomotives and uh, heritage steam locomotives. Not only do they have the real thing, but they have a model railroad, and that's uh, garden scale. And I will be running um, with some other guys. I will be running that layout. Um, and, yeah, I sent you a video of it. I couldn't believe um, And if you if you looked, it's a scale representation of Minnesota. Um, there's the mines up in the Masabi area. Um, there is a cutout representation of the Minneapolis and St. Paul skyline. Uh, there's a lot of time and money that was put into this. Um, so our museum didn't buy didn't buy these. Uh, these things were donated to us. Um, but our volunteers have put in endless hours um, putting it together because, look, model railroaders are general contractors. We, we do a little bit of everything. Um, I even found myself doing some electrical work on my tracks. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a gorgeous layout. Um, and I... I want to start out doing the model trains, and then my biggest my biggest thing is maybe at some point in time actually going out into the yard and working with uh, the real rolling stock and the locomotives. Um, we actually, you know, it's not it's not just like a loop of track. We actually have an old heritage railway called the Osceola and St. Croix. Um, and it actually goes into uh, Wisconsin to Osceola. So there are a lot of excursion rides that you can uh, go on and purchase tickets for, and they they are a 501c3. So all of the money that is spent getting tickets, uh, doing rides, um, doing fundraisers goes back into um, keeping these pieces of history alive because uh, there is a lot, a lot of maintenance uh, that has to go into, especially the steam train to keep it running. That I don't know. I would have to look into it. I know maybe, I'm thinking maybe in the fall for the fall color run, they might pull out a steam loco. Um, but I think the majority um, of it is going to be uh, diesel heritage. Mm-hmm. 
Durango, Durango, Durango and Southerton, or Durango and Silverton narrow gauge. That that was full. Yeah. I I'm sure they've I'm sure that they've switched that over to bunker oil at this time. I don't know. They might still run it on coal, but. Um, Mm. Right. Ash, yeah. Friday, June 2nd. Yeah. Um, and then that'll bring us to so I just wanted to um, update our viewers. Uh, looks like we might not. I mean, we're already 37 minutes in, and I unfortunately don't think we're going to have uh, AG5 price on tonight. So I will have to get in touch with him later and reschedule his show. Um, kind of funny, you know, it, you and I had talked about this before the show, you know, in in circumstance that he doesn't come on, what do we talk about? And it's like, oh, well, we'll, we'll just do a little snippet of, um, yeah, uh, we'll talk about what's going on for future shows, and then we'll end it early. Well, <laughs> we're 38 minutes into it. Yeah, so um, basically what what you were talking about is uh, what they're called. And basically what it is is um, Gold Star. So whenever there is a uh, service member, serviceman or service woman, or airman, airwoman, whenever one of our uh, our heroes, I will call them heroes because at that point they are, Whenever one of our heroes falls, they are um, called Gold Star. And basically, so uh, that means they passed away in, uh, in action. And so what he does is he goes around and nationwide. There's a whole bunch of these guys. Uh, not only are there Gold Star writers, but there are... Uh, the regular Gold Star Foundation. Um, there are other motorcycle groups that do this, 
but basically what they do is they go and they do fundraisers for uh, families of the fallen, uh, help them with anything they need help with. Um, I know sometimes uh, they'll help um, bring uh, the fallen back. Uh, that, that's a big thing as I've seen is they, um, like when a, when a hero is repatriated, um, nine times out of 10, well, it's more often, it's not nine times out of 10, but it is more often, uh, the case where instead of them coming back on a military or a map flight, um, their coffin will be put on a commercial flight like say a Delta Airlines or something like that and, and flown um, to their house. It's interesting because I've seen footage from inside the cabin and basically you get on, you sit down and the captain comes on and says, well, this is where we're going today. This is how long the flight should last, this, that, and the other. And we have the distinct responsibility of bringing one of our nation's fallen home um, although they are in the cargo area they're coming home so they'll take off and usually as soon as they push back from the gate that airport's fire truck will be at the threshold between the taxiway and the runway and they'll have their water cannons shooting over the fuselage of the plane uh, before they, well, probably not before they take off, but when they land, that happens. There will be a fire truck, you know, at the, at the uh, threshold of the taxiway and the ramp, and they'll, they'll wash the plane down in honor of the hero. And then once the plane uh, gets to the gate, um, a military honor guard, We'll meet the plane. Um, the cargo doors are opened, and the uh, the honor guard detail will will bring their flag draped casket from the cargo to the the waiting hearse. And I've actually seen. So when that happens, all of all of the ramp agents stand at attention, even though if they're not military, they all stand in a line. And, and they render honors to the fallen. Um, and it's, it's kind of gut-wrenching uh, to watch that happen. Um, but it, it, it's good to know that I live in a nation that cares that much for somebody who basically put their life on the line, no matter, no matter their affiliation, no matter what they're feeling. Um, because um, in this day and age, there is no draft. The U.S. has no compulsory service. So these are people, <clears throat> aside of the judge saying, okay, you messed up and you have one option. These are people going in and saying, I want to do good. I want to help my nation out. And they're putting their lives on the, They're putting their lives on hold and doing the most selfless thing that I can think of and, and going in and serving. And that's the least we can do for them if they give the last full measure. 
Pay a bill. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I think around yeah a couple thousand yeah the uh, the last couple of days they they rode all the way down to Georgia and back um, and they got home last night I believe these guys have no qualms putting miles on their bike for any reason. Yeah, yep. So he was he was in right around the time that uh Doc V was in. Um Tony was actually in a little bit later than Doc V was. Tony got out um uh spring of ninety one, uh just after uh Operation Desert Storm broke out. Um he was at A G five which um, AGs deal with the weather. So they are, um, they're basically weathermen. Uh, it's a, AG5 is an aerographic mate. Um, it's basically a weatherman. So they're, um, anytime the fleet goes out, they need to know the weather. Every time uh, a plane launches, they got to know the weather. So basically what he was, um, what he was tasked to do was put together a weather report, um, put together a, um, uh, I forget what they call it, but it's a, it's an aviation weather report where in it basically it breaks down by the altitude what you're dealing with. It tells you what to set the barometer to for your altimeter. Um, Right. Yeah. And it's, and that's the thing with, with piloting. It's not just um, going into the briefing room and getting your brief and then putting your gear on and just basically taking the keys from a plane captain and, and jumping in and flying. Um, there is a lot of things that a pilot has to do. And the funny thing is, you know, I say take the keys from the plane captain. There's, there's a big joke between the pilots and a plane captain is, um, so the plane captain is, is ground maintenance. He runs the team that takes care of this pilot's plane. And they have a joke wherein as 
The plane is my baby. I own the plane. I just let you fly it for a couple hours a day and bring it back. Um, so there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of things that go into uh, not only flight weather but sending a ship out. Um, Doc V was saying that before he joined the Nimitz, it was an East Coast ship and. Um, because of her size, she had to go around the Horn of South America um, because she was too big to fit through the Panama Canal. And in doing so, they took a green wave or two over the bow of the flight deck. Now, I need everybody to wrap their head around the size of an aircraft carrier, let alone a Nimitz-class aircraft carrier. Nimitz aircraft carrier from the flight deck to the waterline is right around 70 feet. So they came around the Horn of South Africa and took a wave that was 70 feet plus that sent a I-beam down in a medical supply area. Um, so it's very it's very um, important to have meteorologists and OSHA, um, what do we call them, meteorologists and OSHA, uh, oceanographers. And basically, oh, yeah, it is. It's always been life or death with the Navy from time of sail to current day. Um, Yep. Uh, let me. Yeah, there were a couple things I wanted to talk about. Um, so after June second, it's going to bring us to June ninth, Friday. I'm going to be talking to Lisa Marie key to the other side paranormal. Uh, she actually happens to be in Minnesota. Um, so um, amongst talking to her about her experience and how she got started and um, her experience with bound items, mainly dolls, it just huh, freaks me out. I, I don't you know me, I don't do clowns that much, and I really don't do dolls like that that much. It's just something weird. But we're, we're going to be talking about a couple of things. Um, we actually, she and I both found out about something today. Uh, let me, um, it's a phenomenon that, that happens in Europe. Uh, and I just got to remind myself, um, it's called the Black Volga. And basically what it is, is it's a, um, refers to a legend widespread in Poland and Romania, uh, in Russia area, uh, around the 60s and 70s. Uh, and the legend refers to a, uh, black vehicle of that time. And when that vehicle is seen, um, 
there's alleged abductions. Um, and according to different versions, uh, is driven by uh, a common uh, communist Soviet police. Um, so we're going to be talking about that a little bit and and the um, the happenings behind that. And you know, it it's one of those where if you play, I, I forget the name of the game, but it, you're in a room of people and you turn to the person next to you. I think it's called telephone. You turn to the person next to you and, and you, you tell them something. And then they turn to the person next to them and they tell you something. Well, by the time it gets to the end of the person in the line, it's going to be totally different. It's also due to um, kind of like the the telling the hunting story or the fish story where, yeah, I caught a really huge fish wherein all you know, seriousness, a fish you caught was a big telling tales. Right. It's going to be interesting because we're going to be delving into uh, the NKVD, which was the Russian uh, secret police. Um, there was NKVD and there was uh, KGB. Um, and for those who grew up in the 60s and 70s, uh, know what I'm talking about with the split of, of uh, Germany. Um, there was the German part of Germany and then there was the uh, Soviet communist part of Germany. Um, and it's one of those things where we can probably you know, I'll, I'll probably make a reference to 1990 when the wall fell. I don't remember too much of it, but I remember there it being all over TV. So that will be one subject that I talked to Lisa to. And uh, the other subject is something that I've been researching for a while. Um, I kind of wanted to go out and, and do my own investigation, so I, I was looking at places to go, and I really didn't know where to go. So I started doing research, and I came across a place in uh, the town next to where we live. Uh, it's called Scott Park, and I did some investigation, and, and um, there's a little boy who haunts a park. Um, and it's a really nice park. Uh, it's in a town actually within walking distance of one of the places that we lived. Um, and I think, you know, you know, you know the place that's right by the gas station there um, on a hill. So not only did this hill have great sliding, but to the off side of that hill, they have a little archery range. So, you know, and in the summer it's not an issue because you're not going to have kids playing while you're out there you know, Robin Hooding arrows into a target. But uh, 1998, uh, it was the winter of 1998, and by that time, we had moved um, from that area. In 1998, there were a group of kids that were sliding down that hill. Um, and for some reason, there was a adult that thought it was a good idea to 
um, go and do archery practice while these kids were sliding down the hill. And something went wrong, and there was a errant shot, and it unfortunately hit uh, this child uh, in the eye, uh, killing him instantly. Um, and I haven't been able to find any information as far as to really what has happened with that, but um, the accounts are that if you are sitting at the top of the hill, you will feel um, a slight jump, like you think that you're in a sled. Um, I have also heard that he will only reveal himself to a child. Now, I'm a little skeptic when it comes to child apparition, uh, just due to the fact that nine times out of ten, they're not. So that will be <clears throat> that'll be the last show that we we kind of talk about tonight because we're coming up on 90 seconds. So that'll be um, June 9th. Uh, that'll be Lisa Marie, the key to the other side paranormal. Well, I just wanted to thank everybody for hanging in there today. I know that Tony didn't come on, uh, but I will talk to him and get him on here again. Uh, any last words? Sounds good. Tune in, everybody, next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. Um, and we have a great week. We will see everybody then. God bless.